from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at the major spending in the state Supreme Court race. Then we'll learn about phosphorus and the impact its use is having on the environment. We've got this legacy of just over applying phosphorus to the landscape because it was like an insurance policy. It's, it's like when you're cooking, you know, if a little's good, a lot's better. Plus, our Book of the Month conversation honors Women's History Month with a pick that explores a complicated mother-daughter relationship. She does all these things that would make her a good homemaker, but that's not a woman's sole purpose, is to be a mom and a homemaker. There's other things that women can do. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Today, we'll start with capital notes. The Wisconsin Supreme Court race has broken a record for the most expensive in U.S. history. Money is already pouring into political ads in what is supposed to be a nonpartisan race. Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protosiewicz is being supported by Democrats, and former Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly is being backed by Republicans. Here's WUWM's Ma'ayan Silver with more. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WisPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hello, J.R. Welcome to March. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so last week you mentioned the colossal spending in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. We now know there's been more money spent on that judicial race than really any state judicial race in U.S. history. And it might beat some U.S. governor's race spending, right? Yeah, you know, possible. I mean, I'm kind of a little bit of a a dork when it comes to my spreadsheets and I track spending in in races. And I've I've got, at this point, 19 million that's been spent uh, by candidates and groups in the Supreme Court race. To put that in perspective, the state record previously was 9.8 million in 2020. The most expensive race nationally was 15 million in 2004 in Illinois. So we are well beyond that with, you know, four weeks to go. The question is, you know, how high can it climb? What I'm really watching for is how much money do conservatives pour in this race? And why is that important to me is I keep talking to insiders on both sides who tell me that they expect the liberal side to spend more than conservatives. So if conservatives come in here and spend, you know, let's say $5 million, the liberals tell me they're going to spend more than that. So that'd be seven to $10 million. So I'm not predicting this is going to top like a governor's race just yet, um, but got to keep in mind, you know, a dozen years ago, the 2010 governor's race was $37 million. So we might get somewhere not quite there, but, you know, where we used to see a statewide race for governor uh, that lasted months, we're talking about a sprint too, right? This is, you know, a six-week sprint after the primary. That's really interesting to watch how that plays out. And I'm really watching too, is there a disparity in the spending? And looking at what's happened post-primary, so far all I've seen on the conservative side is about less than a million dollars from Fair Courts America, uh, which is supporting Daniel Kelly. It's an anti-Protosewitch ad hitting her on crime. On the other side, Protosewitch has put $6.5 million into TV so far. Now, that's from post-primary through April 4th. Right? It's not like a 
a one-to-one comparison of the million dollars that Fair Courts is doing. But I'm also seeing a Better Wisconsin Together political fund, which is a, a Democratic group, doing $1.3 million so far in ads opposing Daniel Kelly. And then I'm seeing uh, liberal groups drop about a million dollars on you know, the vote efforts. That's the door knocking, the phone banking, stuff like that. So the liberals are more organized, more enthusiastic, and better funded right now. I mean, there's you know there's still a window for Daniel Kelly to, to win this thing, but that window is getting a little narrow uh, unless we see some conservative money really come in. Now, a cautionary tale for liberals getting too overconfident. Back in 2019, uh, Brian Hagedorn uh, was really being outspent. People thought he didn't have much of a chance to win. And then you saw a rallying of conservatives over the last couple of weeks of that race, a flood of money late, and it carried him over the top. So as long as this thing is done yet, but there's definitely a, a sense of pessimism among some conservatives I talked to about the race and definitely some optimism among Democrats about where things stand between Janet Prosewich and, and Daniel Kelly. And all this money that's coming into Wisconsin, how is it really being used to control the narrative around this Supreme Court race, you know, with these ad campaigns, with what people are talking about? Oh, you're seeing the playbook for conservatives is try to dis- try to disqualify part of the sandwich on crime, right? Every circuit court judge in Wisconsin who sits over criminal cases is going to have a, a couple of quote-unquote bad cases. Ones that have agreed to a, a plea deal or gave less than what was they could have to somebody who did something really awful um, for whatever reason. They make great TV ads, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, they're going to try to use those against Porta Sewich and say that she's soft on crime. It's their best bet right now. You know, there's also an argument that she's trying to put her thumb on the scale uh, of in the courts and really rule in favor of those who support abortion rights or want to overturn the maps now in place for the state legislature. Um, I don't know that's as motivating an argument really, for voters as the crime stuff might be. Now, the challenge is, how do you make it stick? Remember, crime was an issue last fall in the Senate race, right, with Mandela Barnes. With Mandela Barnes, you had him on air saying, or on camera saying the phrase, defund the police. You had a picture of him holding a T-shirt that said, you know, abolish ICE. They also used crime against Tony Evers in the governor's race. Didn't work as well, right? You didn't have Evers saying that phrase on, on camera or recorded. You had him trying to put money into uh, law enforcement over the course of the year. Likewise, Porta Sewich, she's been a prosecutor. She's been a judge. She can point to that as like, look, I'm, I want common sense stuff for crime. So we be interested if that, if that argument sticks uh, and if they can really hurt her with that because there's definitely a part of the electorate motivated by abortion right now. Porta Sewich is running pretty unabashedly about her beliefs uh, and, uh, on that issue. And it'd be interested to see how that plays and if it's what carries her across the finish line come April or if there's some kind of backlash against that. Well, I'd like to know what this means for the voting public because, you know, when you were talking about the tough on crime ads, they've really been called nonsense by lawyers, especially lawyers that are practicing in front of the Supreme Court or doing appellate work because the high court never really rules on sexual assault cases. That's been really at the forefront of a lot of these anti-crime ads. In fact, I'd like to play for you just like a couple 15-second clips that pro-Protosewitz camps are doing against Kelly and pro-Kelly camps are doing against Protosewitz. Here, here we go. Dan Kelly won't keep our community safe. As a lawyer, Kelly defended child sex predators who posed as ministers in order to prey on vulnerable young girls. And here's another one. 
A convicted felon kidnapped and raped a 15-year-old girl, abducting her off the street in broad daylight. Judge Janet Protasewicz could have sentenced him to 20 years. Instead, she put him back on our streets. So what's your take on that? Look, I mean, I get the argument that they don't really have much to do with what goes on the Supreme Court, but the reality is it's all fair game. It's all part of their background, right? And you're judging the character of the person that you're elect, voting for or voting against for Supreme Court. So it's all part, of, it's all fair game. It may not be what they do in the court, but it's all part of the background and the narrative that's being built about this race. And so it's just how things are, are run these days. All right. Okay. So moving on from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, we've got the budget that's still plugging along in Madison. The state is projected a $7 billion surplus and Republicans like Assembly Speaker Robin Voss say that that's one-time money and shouldn't be used to fund new programs or ongoing expenses, whereas Evers has proposed tax cuts and more spending for local governments and K-12 schools. How do you think that that's going to resolve itself or be handled ultimately? Well, it's going to be a question of how much do you put into schools, right? Because And what do you, what do you have to trade off for it? Uh, Governor Evers wants a big boost for K-12 education. Robin Voss and other Republicans want some things for the voucher program. Is there a deal to be made there? There is definitely going to be talk about increasing share revenue, which is the state aid to local governments to help pay for services. Um, I get the impression there's consensus that more should be done for local governments. The question is, what's the trade-off? Will Republicans require, like earmarking that money for law enforcement, for example, or public safety? Will there be money put aside for, you know, innovation, you know, to try to encourage local governments to share services or find ways to cut costs. Those are all things that are to be determined. Now, what's interesting is, yes, the surplus is largely one-time money. That is true. It was built up for a couple of things. One, uh, the federal government pumped a ton of COVID-19 money into state and local governments to try and keep the economy f- flowing. Uh, that helped state coffers. Uh, two, the state did not spend all that money uh, when they did the budget two years ago, put a lot of it aside. So it's accumulated. And three, you, know, you got inflation, and inflation is bad for consumers, but it's good for state tax, sales tax revenues, right? Those have got to be added all together, and we have this pot of money. It's more realistic to look at like what is projected going for the next two years. So from July 1st of this year through June 30th of 2025, the nonpartisan legislative fiscal bureau projects about $1.2 billion in revenue growth. That gives you an idea of how much more we're supposed to take in every two years from, you know, Income, sales, corporate taxes, those kinds of things. That's a more realistic number of like what the future looks like. We have this one-time money, though. Do you use it for one-time expenses? Governor Evers put out a capital budget this past week. So the budget budget, the big document put out uh, February 15th, has spending for schools and Medicaid and tax cuts and those kinds of things. There's a separate capital budget, basically our infrastructure, you know, buildings, those kinds of things. Um, Evers wants to do about $3.8 billion in that budget. Uh, half of that would be in cash because we have one-time money laying around, his argument is. We should use cash to do these projects rather than bonding for them because if you do a bond, you borrow money over 20 years and you pay it off. We would save a lot of interest costs by doing this, right? And now Republicans, I'm, uh, my feeling is they're going to reduce that $3.8 billion down quite a bit. They did two years ago taking a $2.3 billion capital budget down to $1.5 billion. So there'll be reductions, but it gives you an idea that some of this money laying around in this surplus that's you know through the end of this fiscal year, June 30th, it's going to be used for one-time expenses. 
Maybe they do some buildings. Maybe they do a project here or there. Stuff like that that they don't build into the base of the budget. The base, if you build in the base, it's an ongoing expense. That means in another two years, we build the next budget, you got to account for it. So that might be how they use some of this cash to make sure we have a long-term debt, a long-term obligation. We're not going to have long-term money from what happened with COVID and those kinds of things. Well, Voss, the Speaker, Assembly Speaker, has called Evers' budget an unrealistic solution. And he said, quote, absolutely devoid of reality. Are you seeing Evers try new tactics with the GOP to get things done? He met with um, Robin Voss and Devin Lemahieu last week. Uh, we talked to the governor after he addressed the Wisconsin Counties Association. He said they reached common ground, to use his uh, phrase, when it comes to shared revenue for local governments. Now, common ground on doing more money is different than common ground on the details, right? There could be strings attached to that money, like I said before, so we'll see how that plays out. But the governor and lawmakers are meeting when they were before. They didn't talk a whole lot last budget. There's been a, a strained relationship there. But there's definitely more of an effort from the governor to work with lawmakers. We'll see if it bears fruit when this thing is said and done. All right. As always, thanks for breaking this all down, JR. And thank you for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. WUWM's Ma'ayan Silver speaks with J.R. Ross from WIS Politics each week for Capital Notes. The state Supreme Court election is on April 4th. You can find more information about the candidates, election deadlines, and how to vote at wuwm.com slash voter guide. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Purim is a Jewish holiday akin to Halloween. We'll tell you about its history and traditions in about 20 minutes. But first, we'll learn about phosphorus and the paradox it creates for the environment. We're running low on the stuff and we're overusing it to the point that we're really doing harm to the environment. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Phosphorus is an element that's critical to all life on Earth, including the food we eat. But it can also cause significant harm to the environment. Milwaukee writer Dan Egan has taken on the topic in his new book called The Devil's Element, Phosphorus in a World Out of Balance. The book explores how phosphorus has made farming highly productive, but has also caused toxic algae blooms in Wisconsin's waters. Egan shares more about his book with WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Bentz. It's not just a book about pollution or a book about economics or a book about the environment or a history book. It's like all of them. It's, it's a heck of a story. Did you learn a lot as you moved along? Oh, yeah. I, I, I was learning every day. Um, typical, you don't know how much you don't know until you start re- researching. And, yeah, I, I had a hard time putting the book together because it's got phosphorus has its tentacles in so many different things. And, you know, you got to build an arc here if you're trying to keep a reader reading along. And there were so many little arcs and, and you know, dead ends and cul-de-sacs and left turns and right turns in the reporting that, um, yeah, I had no idea it was going to come out the way it did. But it's hard when you're writing about something that is in every living cell. I mean, you can go any direction you can imagine. You take the reader to Florida. That's key for many reasons. There's areas there that have just had or are having intense public health alarm-evoking kind of blooms. First of all, ocean coasts typically don't have this toxic algae that we have in the Great Lakes and across most of North America. All bodies of fresh water are, are, you know, exposed to the potential for, and some people call them algal blooms, I call them algae blooms, because that's, that's what you hear when you're at the end of a bar and somebody's talking about them. So I try to write for the lay person. But, um, yeah, I, I went to Florida because it was really interesting that, that both coasts, the Gulf and the Atlantic, certain communities were being just ravaged by this toxic algae, and that's because it's coming from, uh, Lake Okeechobee in the middle of the state and the middle of the Florida is just saturated with phosphorus just because of all the agriculture and you know unfortunately not all of the crops take up all of the phosphorus so it flows downhill into Lake Okeechobee and then as that lake rises to dangerous levels because it's a uh, largely an artificial lake it's it's surrounded by this dike that has a history of leaking and Earlier iterations of it actually had a history of collapsing. So the Army Corps of Engineers does everything it can to keep the water level in that lake from getting dangerously high so there isn't a collapse and a flood. But unfortunately, that means sending out this toxic water. And I think one of the years, I went to Florida three times for this book, I think. And so I went to some meetings where people are just outraged about this environmental issue. But what really made me perk up was they didn't frame it as an environmental issue. It was just an economic issue and a health issue, a personal issue. You know, their, their property values were being impacted by this. I was reporting that some home sales had become difficult, especially in the wake of some of the more intense blooms. But people were also getting sick. This one guy, who's a, a fisherman, a commercial fisherman, who fished the nearshore area, and uh, he, like, lost 30 or 40 pounds and he had all sorts of GI issues and it was in according to what he relayed to me it was it was phosphorus driven or it was algae driven by phosphorus toxic algae 
could you go back in history a bit? I'm not sure where you're going to plop us, but to give us a slice of the history of mining for phosphorus. Obviously, it's key to agriculture or has been for centuries. It has always been. Phosphorus has always been key to agriculture. And in the early, early days, they would use anything they could find that would help their crops grow. And they didn't know what it was about these substances. They just knew that they worked miracles on on a cropland. And it turns out we now know that's phosphorus along with nitrogen and potassium and that's kind of that's kind of what this story is about just how phosphorus you know shows up in some strange places as chemistry evolved and they were able to isolate the elements they realized phosphorus is is essential and we'll go where we have to go to get it and that took them to some strange places islands in the pacific islands in the yeah the far pacific they scraped whole islands almost down to the waterline because it turned out, so first of all, it was just manure, human, animal manure, and then it was you know, bones or anything that they could think of that might help a crop grow, they, they would apply. And then eventually uh, it, it became rocks, certain, certain deposits of sedimentary rocks, which are just basically the accretion of ancient life over eons. You know, like I said earlier, every living cell has uh, phosphorus in it, and that phosphorus doesn't go away when that cell dies. And so in a lot of places around the globe, but not enough places, it piled up in these, these uh, special sedimentary rock deposits, which we learned in the late 1800s, early 1900s, could be you know, mined and, and processed for crops to grow anything that you can imagine. Among those stashes is a, is a huge stash in Florida. A big stash in Florida, yeah. And, but you know, there's been estimates that the... the um, the uh, reserves, which are character or described as the deposits of phosphorus that are economically feasible to harvest, uh, are going to play out. And, and this isn't in 100 years or 200 years. This could be in three decades, maybe a little more. Um, and then we're going to be dependent on other countries for, if we keep going the way we're going, we're going to be dependent on other countries for their phosphorus deposits. So it is like oil, you know. You were at a conference in Madison recently, uh, several hundred or a couple hundred people concerned in some way or involved in phosphorus research were there. A lot of that conversation was around agriculture. So what, what's going on here? What's, what's happening here is we've phosphorus, chemical phosphorus, chemical nutrients, fertilizer, have been, they've been relatively cheap for a long time, like for most of the 20th century. And they're getting more expensive, but um, we've got this legacy of just over-applying phosphorus to the landscape because it was like an insurance policy. It's, it's like when you're cooking, you know, if a little's good, a lot's better. And so, you know, for a long time, we were applying too much chemical on the landscape and it was making its way into water. And now, as the farms have gotten bigger, we're applying manure in an arguably helter-skelter fashion in some cases. And the land is, is being asked to absorb more manure than it can handle. So that manure does what everything else on this planet does, and that is flows downhill. And unfortunately for us here in the Great Lakes, that too often means the Great Lakes. Or you look at um, some of the inland lakes, like Lake Mendota uh, on the Madison campus. You know, you try to go swimming there in August and July, and you're taking your life in your own hands. I mean, it's really a shame because mm-hmm. you've got—I can just picture it sitting here. Um, you know, the dock, and there's a there's a station or a chair for a lifeguard, and you go there in August, and 
there's there's nothing but flies down there on on the water mm-hmm. because there's just this green goop and that's the product landscape oversaturated with phosphorus. So although the Clean Water Act made a dent in this issue, it not when it comes to agriculture. Exactly. The Clean Water Act uh, really throttled down uh, industrial, because phosphorus isn't just a fertilizer. Sure. It's used in so many different products. One famous case where they, they uh, cut a lake in half, and um, one side got phosphorus and the other side did not. They cut it in half with like this big oversized shower curtain, a big polyurethane curtain. And so somebody went up in a helicopter and took a picture of this lake where it was like a, kind of a peanut-shaped lake. And one, one lobe was, was deep blue Canadian water and one lobe was as green as a golf course. And that was all that the public needed to see to demand that they reformulate detergents, which they did. And the, the recovery for our waters was fast and dramatic. Unfortunately, algae is, is again a big problem. This time it isn't coming from detergents and industrial excrements. It's coming from primarily, almost overwhelmingly, uh, nutrients washing off the landscape in the form of, of chemical store-bought uh, fertilizer, but also too often uh, manure. So close to home, the, the, the Florida stash will be long gone and something will need to be done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. we all have to eat and we're not going to eat without nutrients. And the way the agriculture system works today, those nutrients come from, from the ground. And yeah, nobody can put a firm date on when Florida is going to run out. And it's sticky because there are still some deposits, but there's also immense development pressures. So it's like, are you going to build a condo or are you going to build a phosphorus mine? And, you know, Early on, you're going to build the condo, but at some point, you're probably going to push those condos out of the way and go get the phosphorus. But yeah, we are we are not sitting atop uh, an inf- infinite supply of domestic phosphorus, so that's going to force us to do some things differently in the future, and that's going to obviously mean importing more, but it's critically, I think, I hope, going to mean learning how to recycle the phosphorus that we're using, because that's the beauty of this stuff, and it's also the problem with it. It doesn't go away. It just keeps recirculating. And that's the way, it's the circle of life, literally. The atom phosphorus, you know, stitched together the circle of life. And we cracked it and turned that circle into a straight line that runs from farm fields to our waters. And that's why we have all these algae problems. And it's not just in the Great Lakes. You find, you, you can read about these algae outbreaks in I think pretty much every state in the Union. And it's it's a problem globally as well. So it's a real paradox. We're running low on the stuff and we're overusing it to the point that we're doing harm to the environment. Dan Egan is a journalist in residence at the Center for Water Policy at UW-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. He spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz about his new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus in a World Out of Balance. It's been a busy year here in Milwaukee, and March is already shaping up to be just as busy. Every month, Sam Woods from the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service joins me to share some of the many events happening in the central city. Sam, as always, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Absolutely. Great to be back. So the first event that we're going to look at this month, uh, it's something I think many of us will be familiar with from our childhoods, but this is in fact a community science fair. Yes, um, this is one of, well, I think one of the cooler events of, of the year. It's a, exactly as you mentioned, it's a community science fair. 
Y'all probably remember science fairs from high school or maybe even earlier, but this one is open not just to students, but also community members. And often there's representation from, you know, places like the Medical College of Wisconsin, Urban Ecology Center, as well as a number of schools. But um, yeah, this is the Science Strikes Back Community Science Fair. It's hosted by Escuela Verde and community partners where students and, and community members can present findings from experience, you know, science fair style. And I went to one of these a few years back. They're a lot of fun. It's a, a large variety of experiments. So I remember there being, you know, kind of how you'd expect like a typical science presentation, like uh, there was an exhibit on lava flows and their ecological impact, um, but there's also, you know, exhibits like I remember one that said that was investigating whether loud toots are stinkier. So, you know, there's a healthy combination of of science and and fun, and it's it's free to attend. Very interesting, interesting event. Uh, the next thing that we're going to look at, we are of course pretty far out of dry January at this point, but I think we've seen a lot of new events in the Milwaukee area outside of, you know, January that really focus in on sobriety. Now, this is, in fact, called sobriety, but uh, sobriety. Sobriety, that's right. So that's sobriety-e-a. And and you're right. You may have seen those kind of sober bars pop up and there's kind of, as you mentioned, an outside of dry January, a little bit of a movement to kind of get away from maybe the typical Wisconsin gatherings always being around alcohol. But this Sobriety Tea Party is a tea party for women, specifically for women uh, recovering from addiction. And so you can uh, expect a welcoming atmosphere uh, with like-minded people looking to live um, healthier lives and drink some delicious tea. And it's hosted actually at Honeybee Sage Wellness and Apothecary's new location on King Drive. And I can tell you that they have some incredible teas always available for purchase. Um, I go often actually to stock up on their cup of love tea, which is just so, so, so soothing, hot, cold. It's wonderful. And this event takes place on uh, International Women's Day, um, March 8th. All right. So the next event that we're going to look at, it's a screening of a documentary. Yes. And so this one is also tied to Women's History or Women's History Month, which goes throughout March. And this is a documentary screening um, at the Mitchell Street Library on the film uh, Maestra, which is all about the uh, experience of nine women who taught in the Cuban literacy campaign of 1961. And for those unfamiliar, this was kind of Part of the Cuban Revolution was to see that everyone in Cuba would be able to read. And so this is about a half an hour film that looks at this this particular kind of moment in history and the and some of the women that that made it happen. Um, and again, this is at the Mitchell Mitchell Street Library. Now, uh, we're getting into another event uh, that I think we had so many events in this past month, February, that celebrated Black history, Black excellence in a variety of ways. But we're looking at this all year round, of course. Uh, this event is really for students and also people in the community. Yeah, as you mentioned, like February is kind of the, you know, official month for Black History, but Black History Month is, uh, it may be behind us, but it's it's relevant kind of uh, all year long. And this uh, celebration is a testament to that. So this is officially called the Black Excellence Celebration. Um, you'll see performances and learn more about the stories of local musicians, including students, as you mentioned, from uh, North Division High School, as well as you'll see performances by the uh, Capita Productions. And so Capita 
stands for City at Peace in the Arts. And it's a group that works to bring together people of diverse ages, races, backgrounds, provide an example of how community can work together. And they've they've been doing that work for years now, but if you haven't seen them, it's a treat. And in addition to kind of these, these stories of local musicians and these performances from uh, local artists, local educators who have, you know, gone above and beyond to instill virtues of perseverance and education in Milwaukee youth, they'll also be honored at this event. So if you just want to go and kind of be in community and feel good about, about what Milwaukee has to offer, this, uh, this, is, this is the event for you. A great feel-good event celebrating the community. Uh, now, our final event is going to look at actually Milwaukee's past. Yes. Um, and so this one is at the Warehouse Art Museum, which if you travel over the 16th Street Bridge, you go almost directly above it, um, kind of right when you're by the, the north side of the bridge. But yeah, you're, you're right. This, this event is all about um, Milwaukee's past, specifically between uh, 1935 and 1942, the Milwaukee Handicraft Project. Um, hired thousands of workers to produce textiles, furnitures, toys, books, uh, you name it. Um, and this this uh, lecture is from the Milwaukee Public Museum's Jackie Schweitzer um, and will feature period images of the workers in the Milwaukee Handicraft Project at this time and the products that they that they made. And so Schweitzer will kind of run through these images and give some context on these and other kind of Great Depression era projects. Um, in Milwaukee around that time. And it, it coincides with an exhibition on uh, Ruth Grotenrath, who's a, a local deceased local artist kind of who was also working around that time um, and includes items from uh, Great Depression era projects in Milwaukee. And it runs until the uh, end of March. A lot of great ways to get out into the community this month. Sam, as always, thank you for joining us here on Lake Effect. Great to be back. Sam Woods is a staff reporter at the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service, and he joins me every month to talk about some of the many events happening each month in Milwaukee. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we'll tell you about the Jewish holiday of Purim, which begins today. But first, we'll get a book recommendation for Women's History Month. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Every month here on Lake Effect, we partner with the Milwaukee Public Library for our Book of the Month series to bring you a new reading recommendation. March is Women's History Month, and librarian Aeneas Doublefield has picked a fiction book that focuses on a woman's life in South Korea. Stubblefield is a librarian in the Business Technology Department at MPL. She chats with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang about her latest read. Anaya, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you so much for being here today with your Book of the Month pick. I'm excited to learn more about it. Thank you for having me. So, Anaya, as we all know, March is Women's History Month. And for this month, you have a fiction pick about a woman's complicated relationship between herself and her daughter. Could you tell me more about this book? Who is it by? What's it called? Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm reading Concerning My Daughter. It's by Kim Hyjin. Um, it's translated by Jamie Chang because it originally was written in Korean. But it is about a mom 
So the main character is a mom, but you go through her thought processes with her relationship with her daughter, as well with one of the people she's caring for. And then how she sees the world is very traditional in a sense. And her daughter is living in more current modern times. So pretty much the daughter's sexuality is not approved of from the mom. So we see her kind of just fighting a battle, like an internal battle with herself saying like, at one point in the book, she said, am I being punished? Did I inadvertently pass something bad to my daughter? Because she's she's very much, she does not understand the ways that her daughter uh, lives. She also is kind of forced to help her daughter in a way and it's trying to accept how her daughter is. So it's, it's pretty much like that challenging relationship between a mom and a daughter when they have conflicting views with the other supporting characters, just not the mom and the daughter, but also the um, the person that she's taking care of. She was actually a, like well-traveled. She was an activist um, that was able to really make a difference in the work that she did. But she had this relationship with Lane, her uh, daughter's girlfriend, where it was like she didn't like her because of, you know, the circumstances of her being with her daughter. However, she looked at her highly. She's like, she does all these things that would make her a good homemaker and a wife and a mom. But why is she living her life like this? She doesn't understand you know, the terms of like sexuality and how, yes, women are biologically able to be mothers usually, but that's not a woman's sole purpose is to be a mom and a homemaker. There's other things that women can do. Just hearing more about the book concerning my daughter, it sounds like there's a lot of challenging social expectations of women. Yes, very much so. There was a scene in the book where one of the neighbors um, is having like a a situation of domestic violence and the daughters step in, the daughter and her girlfriend step in to intervene. And, you know, the mom comes, she's like, no, what goes on in their household is their business. And there was a quote in the book. She says, Maybe I am a frightened person, a person who doesn't want to hear anything, who doesn't want to get involved or entangled, just because she's lived a life where she's like, you have to stay quiet about certain situations. You don't want to necessarily shake a table. You want to just live life, obey, and keep it moving. So she's conflicted, you know, with herself, like wanting to help, but then also what she has learned. So it's a learning lesson for Kim. Yeah, definitely does sound like that. And I'm curious, Anaya, what drew you in to pick up this book? What drew you in to start reading it? Okay, I know this will sound terrible, but the cover seems really cool. The cover is like pink and purple. um, And then there's three faces on there. So the cover really did draw me in. And then looking at the, the summary of it, like a widowed woman, in her relationship with her daughter, it, it just seemed like it was a little bit of a drama, like how 
the viewpoints of the LGBT community is in Korea. And then like the, like the traditional standpoints from like the mom and the daughter. So I was just interested in the drama of it, honestly. Reading the book, I did see a lot of other social issues too. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's definitely fitting for our Women's History Month. Like we think about celebrating women who are who have these like achievements or famous or whatever but there's women in all of our lives and but the Milwaukee Public Library is also hosting a bunch of events throughout March to celebrate Women's History Month to celebrate women here in Milwaukee but do you have any that you're excited about? Yes I'm really excited about the new uh, community conversations um, so our uh, city librarian Joan Johnson. She'll be going out to multiple branches throughout the year. But for March, she plans on being at Washington Park Library on March 11th. Um, and then she's also going to be at the Zablocki location on March 13th. And it's just getting a viewpoint from the community. It's something new that we haven't done before. So I'm really excited about that. Um, we also have some children events going on. So we have a woman take flight. That's the event that's going on at Central Library on March 11th as well. There's just celebrating Women's History Month and learning about the world of aviation. We also have a women's history themed story time. This one will be in Spanish and it is virtual for everyone who's interested. Um, that one is on March 17th. And we also have a blog listed on our website highlighting the pioneer, Teresa West. She was the third director of the library, and she was one of the first women to do that role here. Uh, so that's very cool that she was able to change history. Yeah, that's definitely really cool. Definitely a very important woman who changed Milwaukee. But um, Anaya, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for sharing your recommendation and for being here today. Thank you. Ania Stubblefield is librarian in the Business Technology Department at MPL. She spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. When it comes to Jewish holidays, you've likely heard of Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. But many people may not have heard of Purim, which begins at sundown today. To learn more about the holiday, WUWM's Ma'ayan Silver speaks with cantor David Barash of Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jesharin. He says Purim is a fun and festive holiday, kind of like Halloween. He starts by describing the story of Purim. The Persian Empire of the 4th century BCE extended over 127 lands, and all the Jews were under Persian rule. When King Ahasuerus, one of the characters, asked his wife, Queen Vashti, to dance for him, and she refused, he demoted her and banished her from the palace. He held a beauty pageant to find a new queen. A Jewish girl, Esther, found favor in his eyes and became the new queen, though she didn't divulge that she was Jewish. Meanwhile, the evil Haman was appointed prime minister of the empire. Mordechai, the leader of the Jews and Esther's cousin, defied Haman's orders and refused to bow down to Haman, as Jews only bow down to God. 
Haman was incensed and convinced the king to issue a decree ordering the killing of all the Jews on the 13th of Adar, a date chosen by a lottery Haman made, hence the name Purim, which means lots, because it was done by lottery. Mordechai told Esther that she alone could save the Jews by approaching the king and telling him she was Jewish and asking him to save her people. Esther asked the king and Haman to join her for a feast, and at the feast, Esther revealed to the king her Jewish identity. Haman was killed instead, Mordechai was appointed prime minister in his place, and a new decree was issued granting the Jews the right to defend themselves against their enemies. And so on the next day, the 14th of Adar, they rested and celebrated. And that's Purim in a nutshell. So it seems like a lot of things happened that people weren't expecting, right? That is for sure. The story has twists and turns. The plot goes in every different direction. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The music even of when you retell the story is in a certain type of, uh, of melody, an, an age-old uh, tune that you think it's going to resolve and it goes somewhere else. And there, was, there were lots of, uh, lots of twists and turns in the story. So what are some of the customs of the holiday? How we celebrate Purim. There are, there are four special mitzvot or commandments to celebrate this holiday of Purim. One is to hear the Megillah. What's a Megillah, you might ask? <laughs> the Megillah is the book of Esther. It's in a scroll form, and it tells the Purim story. So traditionally, we would head to the synagogue or head to a congregation, hear the reading of the book of Esther with this special age-old chant, and um, I'll demonstrate just a little bit of it. It's, it's kind of an interesting chant. Vayehi bimei it happened in the days of Achashverosh that Achashverosh, he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So it goes every which way. And he keeps doing that all over, all throughout the whole book, throughout the 10 chapters. That's beautiful. So that is... Uh, that is, that's a little bit, that's the first verse, actually, of the, the reading of the scroll of Esther. Some congregations will listen to this uh, Megillah chanted. Some will perform a Purim play telling the story of Esther, acting it out. Our congregation in the past has performed Purim plays. We call them spiels. A spiel is a Purim play. Uh, telling the story based on the music of Les Mis. One year we used Les Mis, uh, the music of Les Mis to tell the story. Another year, Billy Joel. Uh, Disney music we've used, and we've even done it to the Beatles, which is quite fun. Very nice. So, so that's the first mitzvah, is hearing the Megillah, which is the Book of Esther. What else do people celebrate on Purim? So another thing that people do on Purim is there's also a tradition to wear masks, as we talked about before, on Purim children and, you're not, and adults. You're not, talking, you're not talking like COVID masks. You're talking like... like Correct. Like, uh... This is kind of our Jewish equivalent to Halloween. So that's a good point. It's not, uh, it's not masks as we're masking up now, but it's, uh, it's uh, traditionally dressing in costumes. And many people would dress up before going to the synagogue to, to hear the Megillah reading. And then when you would hear Haman's name, there's a tradition to blot it out. And so you would have these Gregors, these noisemakers, 
or you would stomp your feet or yell boo to kind of drown out Haman's name uh, when you hear it in the Megillah reading, in the, in the uh, chanting. Um, many congregations have a costume parade along with prizes for the children during or after the Megillah reading. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the additional um, sort of mitzvot of the holiday? There's one called Mishloach Manot, and then there's Matanot Le'evianim. Yes, yes. So the next one I wanted to discuss was giving to those in need, which is called Matanot Le'evianim. And one of Purim's primary themes is Jewish unity. Haman tried to kill us all. We were all in danger together. So we celebrate together too. And on Purim Day, we place special emphasis on caring for those in need. And just as Esther is the hero of Purim, and the book is named after her, we can all be heroes as well and help those in need. So that's the second mitzvah. Another mitzvah that you mentioned was sending food or gifts to friends, mishloach manot. Uh, We emphasize the importance of friendship and community by sending gifts of food to friends and family. And often people will send packages to friends, and these will include chamantashen, It's a cookie in the shape of Haman's hat with three corners filled with apricot jam, poppy seed jam, chocolate chips, anything that's tasty you can put in the middle of it. Nice. And there's one other mitzvah, which is to feast, to have a feast. Uh, Just as Esther invited the king and Haman to a lavish feast, there's a tradition to have a festive feast during Purim. And is there any particular message that people can take away from this holiday during modern times? Well, I think... For one, just that we can still be resilient and observe these holidays just in a different way because it's important life goes on and this, this calendar of Jewish holidays goes on and we have to adapt and find ways to, to make it meaningful. And there are lessons, just as we said, that Esther was a hero and she, against all odds, she rose up and, and saved the Jewish people and approached the king and exposed Haman. Uh, we can also... Even when it's difficult, we can rise up and do something good for other people. That's Cantor David Barash of Emmanuel B'neib Jushrun. Thank you for speaking to us on Lake Effect. Thank you so much. That was Cantor David Barash of Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jusharan. He spoke to WUWM's Ma'ayan Silver about the Jewish holiday Purim, which begins tonight at sundown. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll meet Wisconsin's new Poet Laureate. Plus, we'll look at a recent report from ProPublica detailing the death of a young migrant child on a Wisconsin dairy farm and the safety precautions that could have prevented it. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.